Dear friends, before I begin, let me ask you to, one, pray for God's illumination. Pray also for me, that God would use me to speak to you. Let us pray. Dear Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges our thoughts and our attitudes of the heart, and nothing, O Lord, in all creation is ever hidden from you. So grant, Lord, that your word would go forth in power to search our hearts, to know us, to reveal us for who we are, but grant, O Lord, also that your living word would comfort us, encourage us, and intercede for us, even as Christ Jesus intercedes for us day and night. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In this past two weeks, we've actually gone through uh, from Genesis uh, chapter 1 all the way to Genesis chapter 3, and now suddenly we jump all the way uh, into the New Testament. In Genesis, we talked about God's creation and how in the whole scheme of things, it was intended that we would enter into this Sabbath rest. And last week, my dear sister Gauri, uh, Pastor Gauri, spoke about sin and the coming of sin and how it marred our image and how Adam and Eve was found to be naked, ashamed, and the covering was required in order to help them hide uh, their nakedness. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means going many thousand years later on. If you have your Bibles open with you, and you can open to uh, page 1866. That would bring you to Hebrews uh, chapter 4. And you'll find uh, in the page just before, 1865, at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, it reads, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews, when he's beginning this chapter, is talking about entering into this rest, in particular, this Sabbath rest. And so what I am trying to uh, bring back to you in this third Sunday after uh, the beginning of this new year was you recall at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, day 7 did not end. It was not intended to end. It was meant to be an eternal Sabbath a very, very good creation where God dwelt with all mankind and all the earth and all that was in it and they would be at rest. Uh, if you recall the illustration, it was as if you were going to go on long leave, long paid leave. But what we realize from this is that that particular Sabbath was shattered 
as soon as Adam and Eve decided to disobey God. I want to illustrate one particular point uh, in this uh, current predicament that the world has. And one of the greatest lies in which we believe in is that we believe that we are good or we believe that we are kind of good enough. Most of us generally tend to think, you know, I'm not a robber, I'm not a murderer. I don't go around lying through my teeth all the time. I don't steal things along the way. I don't put my hand into the offering bag and take out more than I put in. So we tend to think that we are rather good people. And if that is not only the case, uh, let me just take an illustration. The same one that I used on the first Sunday. Now, I don't know how many of you, when you were young, you used to admire yourself in the mirror. Uh, I know in my teenage years, when I was uh, uh, on fire with all the kind of hormones that made you be a young man alive, uh, I'd be spending the time that I had looking at what hair I had then. And so I recall at that time, the pattern was you comb your hair back, you keep it long, you keep it long, a bit like Panj Gunalan last time. You keep it long and then after that, you fold it and you turn it. So you had a little bit like a, a, you know, a veranda in front of your forehead. Or some people would like to have this nice little curry pup in their front there and they would admire themselves and say, my goodness, what a handsome looking guy. Or the women, as long as they're walking past a particular reflection, would suddenly stop, look at themselves, straighten themselves, suck in the stomach a little bit, and walk further. So we have this image of ourselves that says we are rather nice and good-looking. Another image that we have that you quite often see, especially in corporate markets, and I'm very familiar with this coming from the consultancy line, is we kind of like, like to shine a light on ourselves. We put this spotlight on ourselves. And I know when I was doing jobs for my clients, you said, okay, Ronald has worked in this industry for donkey's ages. He has been a consultant for this company, this company, this company. He's got this level of degrees and this certification. Essentially, shine a wonderful light on myself to say, this guy is brilliant. Hire him. Get him to do your, your job. Clean up all the mess that you have. And so in our current world, we think we're good. And we like to highlight what we are really good at in order to impress others and to make them know that we deserve it. But the reality is that Scripture tells us that the fool is one who looks at his image and knows that the reflection of him coming back to him, which is this image of God, shows that he is marred, that he has stuff on his face and his body that is really utterly horrible. And after seeing this image, he walks away and forgets that image. As there's nothing wrong. It's almost as if you go out knowing that there's this little big piece of dirt on your face and you look at it and you say, wow, that's terrible. And then you walk off and you still think, I'm handsome. 
and I'm great and there's nothing to be ashamed of. Or how in Scripture, we say in John, the light came into the world and the darkness did not recognize it and rejected it. You know, the thing that, that light does is it tends to shine on things and show us how misfigured and how ugly we are at times. And in a way, this is the picture that we have. That last week, when we talk about sin, Adam and Eve knew their nakedness. It wasn't just a form of physical nakedness. Adam and knew how disfigured they had spiritually become. Because in their innermost, when they are reflected against the Word of God, against the image of God, they realized that they had fallen really, really far away. And so in this world, we have two kinds of people. Some who realize how naked and how bruised and wounded they are, and they say, Lord God, help me. And some who are rather shameless about this. They glory in their nakedness and they say, I want to be more. I want to do what I want to do. There are people who go around and say, I don't need this mirror. I will make a mirror in my own making. And I will create an image of God of my own making that will reflect to me that I am still beautiful and I'm still good. And so, dear friends, Scripture reminds us that this Word of God, and I read to you from uh, uh, chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You know, if we, if we uh, come before uh, the judge and we have this attitude that says, I think I'm good enough. I reckon I can go into heaven uh, on the basis of the good things I've done. I'm regular in my attendance. I come to church. I sit in the same pew, in the same spot. I glare at people if they sit in my spot because that spot is shaped to my body. I've gone through my membership classes, you know, 12 sessions, dedicating 2-3 hours every Sunday to come. How much sleep I've lost. And I've done all I want to do. If we come with that attitude, we think that we are good. But if you imagine you stand before the judgment seat and God looks at your entire life and replays your entire life before you, the time when you saw a traffic light and you said, nobody's looking. <laughs> the time when you had a friend and you could give to your friend what he needed, but you decided, I want this for myself. The time you knew when you could have helped out your wife with the dishes, but decided the football match is on. These many, many little things that to you may seem like small minor things, but what it really is, is I have made myself into an idol. I am more important than all these other good things. 
And some of us will look at this and say, it's okay, compared to other people, my face looks better, my image looks better. But that is not what God is going to compare your image with. God is going to compare your image with the image of Christ Jesus. And so I came to a realization that one day when I stood at the age of around 40 and I looked at my life and I said, I have tried my level best to be the best that I can be. And yet, in my heart of hearts, in the darkness and the quiet moments, I really know how nasty a character I can be. How petty, how impatient, how angry, how frustrated. You name it. That when we really look at who we are, we realize what a selfish person we really are. And then we begin to realize how broken we are. And if you truly, honestly stand before an awesome, righteous, and holy God who is going to shine this light on you, I would feel like Adam, naked, bare. C.S. Lewis put it very well. When we wrestle with God sometimes, we feel as if we have come out like a de-feathered chicken. All your feathers torn out, only little strands of feather left, bruised, wounded, bleeding, and naked. That is how we sometimes are. This statement from uh, C.S. Spurgeon, who lived uh, 1939 to 2017, he passed away last year. One of the quotes that he gave about the problem of sin, we want to be saved from our misery, but not from our sin. We want to sin without misery. But sin always accompanies misery. I've kind of paraphrased this because in that middle portion, he says, we want to be like the prodigal son. We want the inheritance without the father. We want the good stuff without the boundaries and the rules that come with it. So Spurgeon remarks and makes this observation, sin always accompanies misery. There is no victimless crime and all creation is subject to decay because of humanity's rebellion from God. We have spent this long, dark night ever since day seven onwards. The Genesis chapter three of sin. When you really think about this, Adam never really said sorry. When you really search it, Adam never really said sorry. And some people come to me, especially men, and say, hey, how come Adam is the one who is the sinner when Eve was the one who ate? She was the one who ate it. Some men are looking very eagerly at me right now and say, yeah, 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 what's the answer? <laughs> Adam is guilty because Adam was not deceived. And Adam was right there next to Eve. And if he knew that what she was doing was wrong and yet she didn't stop her, it was almost as if, you go ahead and see what happens. Lah. And if you don't drop dead, I will join in. It's almost as if your partner is about to go and commit spiritual suicide and you want to enjoy 
the benefit of that is like sending out a sacrificial lamb to see what happens. And after he was caught, he blamed Eve. Not only did he blame Eve, he blamed God. That woman <laughs> that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit. Then the woman blamed the snake. And the snake had no legs to stand on after that. <laughs> but you see, the order of creation has suddenly reversed. Adam was created in order that he would have authority over his wife and over all of creation. But instead, the serpent, the created being, speaks authority over the woman who now speaks authority to the man. The whole of creation was put topsy-turvy. We want to be saved from our misery, not from our sin. Adam never really apologized. He tai chi it like crazy. Not my fault. Could it be that he looked at his image and he says, there's really nothing wrong with me? So why does the writer of Hebrews now talk about Jesus? It says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest. Now, uh, there's several things we want to note in the English that is being used here. One, he is great. Two, he's not a normal priest, he is a high priest. There's several types of priests. One is the regular one that basically does all the washing, the cleaning, and the offering, offerings. But the high priest is the one who is the only one once a year during the, the atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. That is the only year when he makes atonement for himself and for all the community, and he goes through the veil that curtain that separates the most holy from the other parts. And once a year, he will go there. Nowhere else is there reference to a great priest, only the high priest. But Hebrews, the writer, says, this Jesus is the great high priest, the greatest of them all. Why is he different? Now, let me first explain the basic function of a priest, whether it is Buddhist, uh, Hindu, or any other priest. The basic function of a priest is to act as a mediator, a representative of the people between God and the people. Please bear in mind when I say this, that Peter, in his writings of the letter, 1 Peter says, you you, my dear brothers and sisters, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So your role is to be a mediator between God and those who have no access to God. And so the role of the high priest was to bring offerings, was to bring gifts, but to make intercession for and on, on behalf of the people. Not only that, you needed a high priest who was sympathetic, to the predicament of the people. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, note this, uh, 
not only has he gone through the veil, the veil of death, he has ascended into heaven, Jesus, Son of God, not just an ordinary man, but Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, why is that in yellow? There are several uh, assertions or attestations, but there is also an exhortation. In other words, something that we encourage to do. Because of the things in written in white, in white, the writer is telling us, hold firmly to the faith we profess. In Greek, that, that word hold firmly is the same kind where a man who is uh, holding on to the garment of a priest or a, a, an elderly person is holding on for support to the hand of a stronger one. Hold firmly to the faith we profess. Then another uh, attestation or explanation. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. There's a very interesting thing about the Bible when you read it. Jesus was tempted in every way, but Jesus was not tempted. Does that make sense to you? He was tempted in every way, but he was not tempted. Why do we say that? We say that because in the scriptures, there is a statement that says that God is light. In him, there is no evil. He does not tempt, neither is he tempted. So when we say he was tempted in every way, but he was not tempted, the outer world was trying to tempt him, but he himself did not ever feel tempted. It is impossible for him to be tempted. When I say that, what I mean is in his attitude and his mind, he did not even consider falling. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. Now, some of us, when we look at our image and we look at our fallenness, we will say, ah, if only, if only I had enough money, then I wouldn't succumb to temptation to, to bribe. If only I had a better income and better parents, then I wouldn't end up being like this. Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment, and yet they fell. So if we tend to con ourselves and say, if only, we realize that we are just kidding ourselves. If we look at the Israelites, they saw God every day. Pillar of fire, cloud by daytime, every day. Mana, quail, every day. And yet, they fell. So all these excuses that we have really is a hiding of the reality that we are marred. Verse 16 is another exhortation. Let us then approach God's, train, uh, God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me summarize that. 
There are four assertions about this high priest. One, he passed through the heavens or he ascended into heaven. It is no longer like a normal high priest. The normal high priest has to make atonement for himself. He has to go through the veil and they have to tie a rope around him in case if he accidentally sins, does the wrong thing, right? I'm not sure whether this has been explained to you. The high priest goes in once in a year, a rope is tied around him, and his dress has bells on him. It's not because he's very girly and at night, it sounds nice. It's so that if there is no longer the sound of bell, it means, ah, he has fallen dead. And we have to pull him out. No longer is that the case, but Christ not only goes through the veil, but has ascended and sitteth at the right hand with God and intercedes for us every day, every moment. He's able to sympathize. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Most theologically profound statement, God cries. He has feelings. He feels lost. Jesus was angry that Lazarus died. The English doesn't come out so well. But in the Greek, what it says, Jesus almost snorted out like an angry horse at disgust that sin has caused death and he breaks relationships in this earth. He's able to sympathize. He felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt pain. He felt every single deadness and corruption of this world. You name it. Born and accused as if he was born out of wedlock, an illegitimate child maybe, born into a poor family, rejected by the leaders, rejected by everyone, betrayed by people, left stranded alone. Every single despair and even more than what we will ever encounter, that Jesus died and no longer felt God's presence because of the sins of the world that was placed upon him. That is one thing that Jesus encountered which we, in a way, will never really understand. To be utterly desolate without even God. He learned obedience. How? Through his suffering. You ever wondered, you know, we always have this great philosophical question, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? One of the answers is so that we would learn obedience. We encounter suffering so that we would learn obedience. Because it's impossible to be obedient sometimes when, it's, when you're suffering, you feel like running away. And fourth, he became the source of our eternal salvation. Four assertions, two exhortations. Hold firmly to the faith that we possess and approach the throne of grace with confidence. Four assertions, two exhortations, one motivation. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Let's go back to that image that we always think about. We think we're great 
but when we reflect it against the perfection of Christ Jesus or against this world, we feel utter despair. How will we ever match up to that? And then we come to realize that one, Jesus has done it all for us. We can either follow our way, which would mean to accept that God will reject us, or we can accept Jesus' way, that He has done it all for us. And when we come to that point, we receive mercy, find grace in our time of need. You have this in your outline uh, in the bulletin. So if you wanted to fill in the blanks, you can fill it in. I wanted to highlight this thing. Jesus, Son of God, learned obedience from what He suffered and once made perfect. doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect before, but He needed to be completed. In other words, His suffering and His trial affirmed and completed His perfection. He became the source of eternal salvation for many, for all who obey Him. Here's a condition for salvation. Salvation is by faith. Faith, you know, uh, many times we say that salvation is by faith alone. But faith never comes alone. Faith always comes with works, the works of obedience. So if one person says, you know, by faith I'm saved, you know, I can continue doing on what I want to do, I just need to believe in God, point them to this. Salvation, yes, who believe in Him, but that belief is evidenced by obedience to Him. To my dear brothers and sisters who have to deal with situations where it is so, so hard to set boundaries for your children, do them the favour of setting this boundary so that they would learn obedience. Because if they do not learn obedience from you, they will not learn it from anyone else. And by the time they stand before God, it will be too late to talk about obedience. Is obedience not just for our sake, but to know that God loves you, that parents love their children, and set these boundaries because parents themselves break these boundaries. I have to tell you this, I grew up in an environment where in the older generation, no one ever admitted that they were wrong. They were like Adam and Eve. And because of that, children rebelled. Children rebelled and the number one word in your mouth is, you hypocrite. You tell me to do this, but you yourself are like this. You tell me to be kind to others, but you yourself like, like this. And I have had to deal with children now, not just my own, but every other child now, to realize that the great benefit of Christ is not that I have to say that I am beautiful, marvelous, and perfect. That the beauty in our faith is that I can admit I am broken, wounded, marred, just like you. And the both of us need God's grace. And I am here to show you where I went wrong. Because only when they come to this point will the children ever say, you have great courage to admit your failing before me and to talk about the reality of who you are 
rather than the image or mask that you are trying to portray. Many times, teenagers, adults have broken down when their father especially admits to them, son, I have made the same mistake like you. I have seen adult grown men cry in front of their children and admit, I struggle with pornography. I struggle with lust in the same way that you do. And the boundaries that I place are not just boundaries for you, they are also boundaries for me because I know if I cannot trust myself, how can you trust me? And that vulnerability denotes great courage because without vulnerability, you would not need courage. Vulnerability is not the opposite side of courage. Every act of courage requires vulnerability. And your children will admire you for the courage to be vulnerable in front of them. We admire Jesus not because He is God up far, far, far away next to our idea of God, the white, long-bearded, long-white-robe kind of picture. We admire Jesus because He walked the same earth, breathed the same air, ate the same food, cried the same tears, was angry about the same evil that we are broken about. He was with us, among us, for us. And He dwelt with us. And He has encountered every other thing. But He is not of the order of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. He is of the order of Melchizedek. And if you go back to Genesis, who is this Melchizedek? Melchizedek is king of Salem. Priest of the order of the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth. He comes out of the blue. He sees Abraham. Abraham knows that he comes from God, worships him, or rather serves him. And through him, acknowledges that he is not only priest, but king. So when we refer to Jesus of the order of Melchizedek, he comes not just as a high priest, but a king and a high priest. We have this verse in Philippians. I'm just going to turn to Philippians now. That's in chapter 2. Different versions of the Bible, uh, NIV, and even NIV, whether it's the 2008 version, 2004 or 2011 version, gives slightly different uh, beginnings. In the 2011 version, it says, in your relationship with others. If you want to know what it looks like, you turn to your cover of your bulletin. It says there, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Now, let me just read what we have here. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus or in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at. 
And the grasp at here in the Greek is something to be clawed at, to be grabbed. I want to highlight a very important thing in this particular text. Who being in very nature or who being in, in form was like God, we tend to think uh, in some of the older translations, especially if you read the ESV or RSV, or other, you would put there, who, though he was God, took on the likeness of man. As if, wow, he's so great. Huh? And be, even though he's so great, he decides to be a man. That's actually not what the Greek grammar says. The Greek grammar would more likely read, because he was God, because he was God, he also came down to be man. Now, this is quite interesting because what it tells us is God did not look at the human form and the human likeness with distaste and say it's repulsive. No. His original intent, if you recall, was to have his breath breathe into us, his spirit breathe into us, giving us life, and he was going to be with us. So we read again, who being in very nature God, because he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, you see this theme. He came, he suffered, in order that he would learn obedience, even to the point of death. We have many, I have many friends who are agnostic or atheists, who said, I cannot accept that in the presence of a God, that he would allow pain and suffering. And my answer to them is not to answer their question, but to throw a question back to them. My problem is not that God allows suffering. My problem is that God Himself suffers. And if He Himself suffers, why do we think we are greater than God, that we should not suffer? We kind of kid ourselves. And He learned obedience. So, you know, my task in, uh, in pastoral ministry is not to be successful not to be very, uh, you know, not to shine the spotlight on me or whatever, but to be obedient. We are measured by our faithfulness, which is seen by our works and our obedience, not by our success. So even if some of our mission guys go out for mission for 10, 20, 30 years and nothing happens, keep going because they are being faithful to what they are called to do. Leave the fruitfulness to God. We are just called to be faithful and obedient, even on a cross. So this is what I summarize in the outline. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, in the form of God, verse 7, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, made in human likeness, humble himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed him this beautiful 
poetry, if you want to call it that. That the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Do you know what this name is? This name is given in Revelations. The new name of Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Name above every other name. Now, I want to come and spend more time on this particular aspect. If God himself felt that as God, I will come down to be with my human beings, my created beings, how will you reflect the nature of God in being the God-slash-servant, veiled in flesh with the mind of Christ? We are called to be incarnate, and being incarnate means being in the midst of the problem. You know, in, in a lot of leadership, especially in what I used to do in the marketplace, consulting is, okay, I come, I look at your problem, I tell you what the problem is, you pay me a lot of money, then I go away. You go fix the problem after I tell you. But if you want me to fix it, okay, you pay me a lot of money, I come, but I'm not part of you. I'm still just one person who is outside of your problem. No solution was ever found by people who are outside of the problem. They have to be in that problem. Because unless you know the issues, you know the heart of the people, and you can empathize and sympathize with them, you are just an outsider. God came and he entered into the situation in order that he would be part of the solution because we knew no other way. What does that mean for you now? I know it means several different things for different people. I think if you look in your bulletin, there's one item there about Crest Disaster Crisis Awareness Talk at the back of your bulletin. In the event of a disaster like a tsunami or an earthquake or a building falling down, people will always ask, God, why? And in the midst of my pain and suffering, where are you? Philip Yancey, in answering this question, says, when people ask, where is God when it hurts? The answer is, God is in the face and the hands of those who are responding to that crisis. God is seen in the hands and the face and the actions and words of those who respond to that crisis. Time after time, Yancey has gone to Aceh to 9-11, uh, ground zero, to all places of disasters. And what he has found in answer to the question of where is God has been the number of Christian organizations and churches that respond with compassion and help to the problem. But my dear friends, in order to respond, you have to be there. Many people complain about our education system but you realize there are very, very few Christian teachers there. Many have left the profession. So we complain about MBS, MGS, or any of our Methodist schools being gangster environments. Church, are you there? 
Do you only care and say, okay, you need money, I send money. You need prayer, I pray. But even if God tells me I need to be there, mm, let me pray harder. Wait for the answer to be, no need lah. Someone else will go. How will you be incarnate? How will you be this God's servant incarnate in the problems that our community face? And I've come to realize that one of the ministries of our church is the ministry of presence. To be there. Jangan cakap saja. Be there. Empathize, sympathize. Rejoice when they rejoice. Grieve when they grieve. Because that's what we want too. In our darkness, we want people to be there. Then be the one that wants that too for others. So my dear friends, in the application question, where has God spoken to you in your heart to say that you need to be my image present in this difficult situation? Jesus responded by being in the place he needed to be where he would be crucified. Most of us don't want to be crucified, I know. Going into the schools and being ridiculed, and fighting many obstacles, nobody wants. Standing up against corruption, nobody wants. Just yesterday, one of my teacher friends said, you think our ballot is secret? <laughs> you know the number of government servants that have been transferred out who voted for opposition? We know it is not secret, even if they say it's not secret. So my question to this friend was, so, how will you vote? Will you vote according to your conscience and suffer and be incarnate? Or will you vote for something that you know is wrong and then receive the reward from a corrupt environment? Which will you choose? To be incarnate is to struggle with these issues and make a choice of obedience denying the self, dying to the self. So how will you act as Christ incarnate? Now for some of you, particularly in Penang, I realised last year was the first time out of many years when there was a crisis, flooding that had never been seen before at a very large scale. And so this talk that's been organised at uh, Wesley, uh, actually is being conducted by Crest, so on Sunday, January 28th, 1 to 3 p.m. Lunch provided. $5 only. Please go. And even if you are not one of the volunteers, you will understand if something happens, what to do, who to contact, and how to escalate. Then I pray at that time, when it happens again, I'm not talking if, uh, when it happens again, you will be the face and image of Christ to those who need you the most. Then we can talk about Christ in our community. Dear friends, let us pray. Dear Lord, help us to be the mind of Christ veiled in this human flesh in the same way that Christ was for us the ultimate 
in God and man together. Help us to follow and be the image. And even as you shine your light on us, Lord, help us to know that your grace and mercy is always there, that you know every weakness and failing that we have gone through, and you sympathize and you empathize with us, Lord. And you hold our hands, and you nonetheless cover us with the blood of Jesus Christ, for you have accomplished what was needed, Lord. Teach us your way, Lord. Teach us how we may worship you and worthily magnify you. And help us to continue to stand in the gap for those, Lord, who need to see God in their midst. Help us to be that royal priesthood and holy nation that you call us to be. We ask this and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.